welcome back to my podcast, The Stranger Sessions, or also known by a Christian Teen Podcast, since I sort of changed the name so that it's easier to find. Um, today we are going to be doing the third, wait, is it the third or the fourth episode of the Love series? It's the fourth episode of the Love series. I believe it's the final one as well. Um, because this was as much as I planned to do, so we'll have to see about that. To be honest, I might end up doing one more because I have not finished the book I was reading, um, called Love the More Excellent Way by Chuck Smith. I haven't finished it yet. I might end up doing maybe one more episode, but for now, this is the final episode, um, and we're going to be talking about agape love, which is unconditional love. Also, God's love for us. Um, I cannot do justice to this in any way, and I know that. I don't fully comprehend agape love because it is huge and it is bigger than me because it is God's love and God is love. Love is literally God. And so I'm not going to try to cover everything that goes with this unconditional love. And I'm mostly going to honestly be sharing what uh, the two pastors, or I think they were both pastors, said about this love in their books because they said it so well that I just don't see a reason to rephrase it. I will be giving them both credit because obviously it's not mine. But um, if you want to know about God's love, I totally recommend it, <laughs> and I recommend that you would ask him to show you his love, because that's what I asked him to do, and I have not been disappointed by it. It has been amazing. I'm going to be sharing you guys one of the most amazing things that I read, but later, just a little later, um... Obviously, the most amazing display of God's love was when he saved us on the cross. Uh, when, when he came down as a sinless man who was punished for our sins. So that someday when we stand before the judgment throne, our sins will have already been paid for. And we can live in heaven forever with our Savior. When he came down and he got what we deserved and we got what he deserved... That is his greatest, biggest, worldwide, just, like, display of his love for us. And if you have not heard about that, if no one has told you that your sins already have been paid for, and all you have to do is just accept that, as soon as you believe that he did that for you, you are saved. And he's your savior. So, do not think that you are working for the salvation or you owe something for the salvation. It has, it's already done and it's like a present someone's handing to you. You just have to take it. So if you have not accepted that present, uh, I definitely recommend that you would. And I pray that you would because the time is at hand. What can I say? If you look at what's happening around the world, you're going to see wars and rumors of wars and what this is all leading up to. Um, 
the one world order that is being built uh just everything that's coming everything that as christians we can see what was prophesied in revelation and in isaiah and places everything is coming to pass there is nothing left to be fulfilled before the rapture of the christian church or the rapture meaning that when all the christians disappear because jesus took him took them away um i'm not sure what you believe regarding the rapture you might believe that it's post-trib or in the middle of the tribulation or before i don't know i personally really hope and pray that it's before the tribulation and i've talked about this before that's not the focus of this episode i'm just i just wanted to say the gospel again because I think the Christians are going to be leaving sometime soon, whether it's during the seven years or before, whatever. We're going to be leaving. I don't know when. Nobody knows when except God. <laughs> but we will be doing it. And I want it to be very clear out there that if you have not accepted Christ, even if the Christians already are gone, you still have the chance to receive that and live forever this life right now is just a tiny little glimpse compared to eternity and you get to choose your own fate or your own destiny whatever it's called whether you volunteer to live your life in agony in darkness and pain in hell because that was the punishment for the devil it was never intended for humans but when the humans rejected the plan that god had intended they um they volunteered to go to hell because some people do not want jesus and so they'd rather go to hell they don't want hell either they don't want hell or jesus but the creator of the universe has made two options and as people, we are under that. <laughs> and we get to choose. And that is love. That he gave us the choice to love him or to not love him. Because my pastor says it this way. If a husband beats up and hits his wife all day and says, you better tell me you love me. And forces her to say, I love you, what's she going to do? She's going to say, I love you, whether she does or not, because there's a consequence there. And so that's not real love. Real love would be to love the wife and give her the option to love him or to not love him. And that is what Jesus did when he sent us here and gave us this free will choice to either love him or not love him. Because if we were not given that choice, we would just be robots programmed to love him but instead he gave us a choice so that we could choose to love him uh because he loved us first so that's all of that <laughs> i do not have a way with words okay just i just say stuff and hopefully god speaks through me um but yeah it's as simple as that you just receive the gift of salvation literally the prayer there is no prayer you can say whatever you want jesus knows your heart so if you truly believe in that and you are you are accepting of that gift 
Uh, see you in heaven. <laughs> now, I have a few things I'm going to read to you guys. But I know in the past I've read to you and I was bad at reading. I have done some practice. <laughs> and I think I got better. That's kind of your place to decide if I did or not. But I'm just going to read to you the definition of agape love according to Chuck Smith in the book called Love the More Excellent Way. I've done this with the previous definitions of the two other loves that we were talking about. Um, and so I'll do it with this one as well. Um, so this is page 36. Well, the, the paragraph on page 36. Um, he says, But when you enter the realm of the spirit, which neither the ancient Greeks nor the modern secular world knows, you find a depth of love that transcends basic human love. Agape speaks of a dimension of love far greater than emotions and much deeper than just physical attraction. It's a spiritual love that comes from the deepest part of a person's being. This love does not look for something in return. It does not seek recip reciprocity. I practice saying that. Reciprocity. Obviously not enough. But simply teaches... No. But simply reaches out to embrace the object of its love. Since such a divine concept did not exist at the time of the New Testament. Maybe I haven't gotten better at reading. <laughs> Since such a divine concept did not exist at the time the New Testament took shape. Its writers took a little used Greek word and transformed it to express a depth of love that transcends physical love or emotional love. A self-sacrificing love. And thus, the New Testament writers essentially coined the word agape to describe a giving, selfless kind of love. It is this word that the New Testament consistently used to describe God's loving, expansive attitude toward us. Think of it. His love for us is so deep, so great, that the writers of the New Testament basically had to invent a word to portray the vastness of its depth, strength, and power. So they literally created a new word. Well, they took a word that no one really used and made it into a new word, basically, to describe a love that they know they did not used to have a word for, and that is agape. And that is one of the problems in our language, well, in English, is that love is used for three different types of loves, and maybe more things, but three main types of loves when the three loves are different than each other and agape and eros love are on their stark contrasts because eros love is a self kind of love a physical kind of love while agape is a self-sacrificing love and uh, an unconditional love of the spirit and i took a note i wrote a note at the bottom of this page that says Filio does not satisfy the soul. That is, the brotherly or friendship love does not satisfy the soul. Imagine those who cannot get past eros or filio, meaning imagine those people who are are non-believers. Non-believers on can only take part in eros or filio love, meaning self-love, physical love, lust, or just friendship love. They can't get past those types of loves because agape love is a love that comes from God or through a person who knows God. 
It is an unconditional love. Something that does not depend on the condition or the situation. It is continual. It is eternal. It is self-sacrificing. It is unselfish. Maybe there has been a non-believer or something that has shown an unconditional act of kindness, you know, maybe so. But I think that mostly the only places you would see those that kind of love in the world is through Jesus or the gospel or through a Christian who's shining a light um, or showing Jesus' love. So I think that's also why sometimes when people hear the gospel, they are so... It just catches them off guard and it just... It's just strange in the world because agape love is not a normal love in this world. It is the love of God. Um, and so I said, imagine those who cannot get past eros or filial love. They're being very, they're very being aches and moans for agape, and yet they know nothing of it, because our souls we were meant. For agape love. We were meant to have the love of Jesus. And be satisfied by him. Because we are. We are beings with souls. We have. What do we have? We have like the physical. Emotional and spiritual sides of us. Right? And physical is eros. And um, emotional is filio. And then there's one more. that The most important one. Our spirit. Our spiritual being. Our soul the biggest part of us that is eternal, it aches and it longs for love, and that is why so many try, so many people try to fulfill that love with the eros and the filio, but they're not getting what they need, and that's just even hard to imagine for me, who has experienced that love because I've ex accepted it. It's hard for me to imagine not knowing about agape love just thinking that all there was was lust and physical attraction and self-satisfying love in this world and maybe just friendship or brotherly love that is not enough and there's no purpose in that that is not satisfying and so i can see why so many people Decide that life is not worth living on a daily basis because it's not worth living if there is no agape love in your life. Um, then we move on to page 91 who kind of talks, talks a little bit more about what kind of love Jesus has. Because when we want to know about agape love or unconditional love or how to love, we're going to look at Jesus and what he was like. So this is The More Excellent Way by Chuck Smith, um, page 91. And it says, So what kind of things did Jesus say and do to reveal to us the heart of God? Consider Luke 6, 27-31. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek offer the other also and from him who takes away your cloak do not withhold your tunic either give to everyone who asks of you and from him who takes away your goods do not ask them back and just as you want men to do to you you also do to them likewise 
and he wasn't finished. Despite how the people's heads must have been spinning, he then added, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. So then, what major things did Jesus reveal to us about his Father? He revealed that God loves all, even his enemies. Those who make themselves enemies of God, those who oppose God and set their wills against his, he loves despite their rebellion. God does good even to those who hate him. Elsewhere, Jesus said that God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he causes, to rain, he causes rain to fall upon both the just and the unjust. That's Matthew 5.45. He does good to those who hate him, and he blesses those who curse him. That's tough, isn't it? How do we naturally respond if somebody curses us? Be honest. And yet, God blesses those who curse him. Do you remember Jesus' prayer after his enemies had nailed him to the cross? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He prayed for those who mistreated him. And so, in Jesus, we see what God is really like. God's love is so great that it overcomes all opposition and clears away all obstacles. As the scripture says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So often it has been the goodness of God that has brought me to my knees. How good he is. Jesus reminds us of this again when he declares, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. That's Luke 6.37. These are the glorious traits and characteristics of Almighty God. And so John could write, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's John 3.17. Jesus came to forgive our sins, and he expects his disciples to follow his example and continue to reveal God's loving nature to the world. Of course, all these things irritate and oppose our fleshly nature. We don't naturally like loving our enemies, doing good to those who hate us, blessing those who curse us, praying for those who mistreat us, mistreat us, turning the other cheek and refusing to judge or condemn. Jesus knew all that, and yet he could still say, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? On the other hand, why wouldn't we want to do the things that Jesus commands us to do? What do we find so objectionable about them? <laughs> don't you think it would be much better? Don't you think it would be a much better world if everyone followed his commandments and lived by his instructions? Wouldn't you like it if everyone treated you as you'd like to be treated? So here he was talking about. I think he was talking about how a lot of people don't understand how the God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament were so different. And so he was trying to show us how God revealed his love to us through his son. One time I taught, was talking to my youth pastor about this. And I was like, I don't understand. No, I, I, was, I don't remember exactly how it went. But I was talking about it. I was like, in the Old Testament, God was like, you know, he was big and mighty and strong. And he was angry, I guess. And then in the New Testament, he's kind and loving and gentle, and he's different. But the Bible says that God never changes. He's always stay, he always stays the same. So 
well, that was my youth pastor's response to me. He was like, no, God never changes. God is not. He is the same today, tomorrow, and yesterday. He was all the same. He never changes. Therefore, it cannot be that he was a different God in the Old Testament. And so, actually, in this book, he, uh, Chuck Smith talks about that, how God is the same and how he has revealed his love to us through Jesus Um I don't understand it all, but I do recommend reading this book um, because he does explain it. I'm not finished with the book, and hopefully by the end of the book I'll have a better understanding of why it was so different in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, why everything was just so different. Um, but I definitely recommend that you read this book if you are trying to learn about the love of God. Sorry, somebody texted me and I got distracted. Okay. Another thing is that when, I think I already said this, but I'm not sure. Whenever we ask, well, I guess whenever Jesus is trying or God is trying to reveal his love to us or show us his love he always points to the cross and i was like huh it says i find it interesting that the bible never seeks to prove god's love to us apart from the cross whenever the bible wants to exhibit the fact of god's love it always points to calvary god demonstrate his own god demonstrates his own love toward us paul wrote in that while we were still sinners christ died for us that's romans 5 8 we don't learn much about God's love from nature. It can bring us to the awareness of God's existence, but not much more. That is why every culture in the world has some consciousness of the existence of God. Nature gives us a very powerful witness to his reality. Wait, where does it say? I'm trying to find it. Where did he say other than the cross? I guess there is manifestation. There is proof. How did God most powerfully demonstrate the magnitude of his love? By sending his son into the world that we might live through him. Every Good Friday when we gather to remember the death of Jesus Christ, his suffering, his pain, his agony, we should remember for it for what it is, an amazing demonstration of God's love. So it's just interesting how even after I read that, I was like asking God to show me his love and he ended up pointing to the cross and I, I guess that may be some way of Jesus just being like, you know, look at the cross. How many times do I have to point this out for you? I literally died and bore the wrath of God, which you cannot even comprehend for your sins. And you have no sins anymore. You're going to live in paradise with me forever. You're going to have everything you ever could dream of. You cannot even imagine how good it is. That's how good it is. Nobody has ever imagined or seen or heard what it is that he is preparing for us right now in heaven. And it's just like a surprise and I just can't wait. And I think we forget that and we're like, Jesus, show me that you love me. How do I know? Look at the cross. He did that for you. He didn't have to do that. The only reason he was on that cross was because he loved us. That was the only thing holding him onto that cross. You think those nails could hold him? No. You think those soldiers could have held him on there? No. 
do you think those priests and high priests and whoever else was there could have somehow condemned him to death if he tried to get away? No, absolutely not. The only reason that he was there was that he wanted to pay the price. He wanted to die so that we wouldn't have to die spiritually. Of course, as people, we are going to die because we are people. As dust, as humans who were made out of the dust, we're going to die or get raptured. That's my hope. <laughs> but he wanted to die for us. So that's the only reason why he was on that cross. I have another little passage in the Bible that I read this morning. Isn't it interesting how things tie in together that way? Um, it's Luke chapter 9, 51 through 56. It says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned to them and rebuked them, saying, You did not know what matter oh, you do not know what matter of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And so I think the reason why they said that was because the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. I don't really understand all of it, but they did not welcome him. Therefore, James and John wanted to command fire and consume them. But Jesus was like, you do not know what you're, what you're saying. Um, wait, let me see. Yeah, you do not. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where. You do not know what the manner of spirit you are of. So they didn't really, I guess, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but he, he says he did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And that's just another picture of his love. <sighs> he is altogether lovely. When you do not know Jesus, it's hard to imagine what he's like, besides just the Bible stories. And so, when I began to try to figure out who Jesus was and get to know him on this journey that I talked to you about, I wanted to know him. Because people have spoken of him in such a loving, dear way that, they, that he is their beloved, as the Bible portrays him as a friend, as a beloved person, uh, like a... A beloved friend, I don't know. A prized friend who is forever, basically. Um, and I did not know what that was like. And I kind of understood that there was such a thing, but I didn't know. I didn't have it. So I asked the Lord to bring me closer to him to help me discover that. And he did. I don't think, I definitely probably don't know him as much as a lot of people do and I probably don't know him like these pastors do and I probably don't know him even a millimeter of 
how much he can be known, but as much as he has already shown me, he's altogether lovely, and it's so, it's so, I don't know what the word should be, but it's so dear, I guess, to know that Jesus is lovely. He's so, he's so kind, and I think this is something you have to discover on your own with your own time in the word and trying to discover his love, asking him to show you and to lead you. But I want to read this. I'm reading, I've talked about this one too. I've, I'm reading this commentary by J. Vernon McGee. It's Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, but I was reading Song of Solomon. Now, if you know what the Song of Solomon is, oftentimes as kids and as we're growing up, it is awkward and weird. And that is why I wanted to read it is because on my own, reading Song of Solomon, I could never understand the symbolism in there. It just seems like a guy and a girl and somebody singing songs and saying weird things. We're not really sure what's happening. But reading this com excuse me, reading this commentary has really unlocked that book for me. You know how like when you're playing a game and you unlock levels or you unlock parts of a map or something? I feel like this is what life is for us. We continually get to unlock certain levels and mysteries and little discoveries that Jesus has hidden everywhere in life. And this is one of the things is is in the Bible a lot of times there are so many things to unlock, treasures to unlock, wisdom and love and things. It's really fun to be honest and it's amazing. And it takes work. What treasure does not take work to find? It is not worth as much if it doesn't take work. And so reading this commentary has really opened up my eyes to what a lot of the poetry in that book is about um, in regards to Christ and the church rather than just a man and a woman who are in love. Um, so if you're thinking to discover what that is, I would definitely recommend this commentary, um, The Song of Solomon by J. Vernon McGee. He makes it so simple to understand. Like when I bought these books, I did not think the English in here would be so easy to read and understand. I thought it'd be hard, like for instance, what's his name, A.W. Tozer, he writes books too, or he did, I don't know if he's passed away now. But when I read them, I could not comprehend the things he was saying. Kind of like how Paul uses very long run-on sentences in his books. And I often have to translate them to English to try to understand <laughs> what he's saying. That's what I expected. But when I opened this book, it was just so easy. And I'm going to read you a part of it. This part was my favorite part in the whole commentary. And it was just so beautiful just to see how Jesus was portrayed by these guys. So I'm going to read it to you now. The... Part of the chapter is titled The Beauty of the Beloved. In the Song of Solomon book, Jesus' name or the the man's name in the play, because Song of Solomon is like a play slash poetry, um, he is said to be the beloved, which is also seen as Jesus in regards to the woman who is the church. I hope you understand it. If you don't, that's okay. Just listen, and if you understand anything at all, it's worth it, okay? I'm sorry if some of these things are just too confusing, um, and I don't 
have the words to explain it. It's just something that you will unlock if you continually try to. The beauty of the beloved. Now the bride is going to answer. She is going to respond to their skepticism. You would think that they had her cooled off and that she would have toned down what she says about the bridegroom, but it didn't work that way. Actually, she now waxes eloquent concerning him. <laughs> That's an interesting term, waxing eloquent. So this is what the Bible says. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the river of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips are like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. I don't know how to say that. Burl. It's like a jewel. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So basically, what's happening here is some of the people in the play basically ask, what is, uh, what is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? So basically, I'm going to try to translate this really quick. Let's say I, I have a crush on this guy, okay? And there have been people who asked me, like, what, what do you like about him? What are the things that you like about him? And, or what makes him special, more special than somebody else? Like, for instance, that guy or that guy. And I could just, if I knew him well, you know, if we were dating, if we were, you know, engaged, whatever, if we were together, I could tell, I could defend him because I knew him well. I could be like, his hair is amazing. It's just so fluffy and beautiful. And his eyes are just, I can't even look at them. They make me die, okay? His smile lights up his entire face. Is one of the best things ever. He has braces. <laughs> and I think those are so cute. Okay? And his entire... He has a smirk. He does when he's being sarcastic. And he'll just look at you like that. And just be like... And that gives me... That just... I just melt okay like not I just can't stand I shake and he the way he stands like he just like he's so casual he just like stand you know I could just go on about that okay I could just continually explain to you what causes me to be so you know enthusiastic about my crush on him or you know whatever but that's basically what's happening here is she's telling them why he, her beloved is so special and that, I know that sometimes this poetry can cause us to be a little thrown off like who says that his eyes would be washed with milk like who says that nowadays no mostly nobody 
but maybe it was different back in that culture and the poetry and the metaphors and stuff um but that's basically what's happening <laughs> and then uh he goes on and says there is something here that is very obvious and that is that she describes him in minute detail is that how you say that minute minute detail so really small detail <laughs> do you know what that means it means that she knew him she knew him intimately my friend if you are going to defend the lord jesus christ today if you are going to witness for him you must know him not only do you need to know who he is but you need to know him enough to be able to wax eloquent on his behalf when i say eloquent I don't necessarily mean eloquent in language. I mean full of enthusiasm, excitement, love, and zeal for his person. You and I not only need to know him, but we must love him. That is the challenge that we find here. The bride knew him. She knew him, and she loved him. She says that he is the chiefest among 10,000. He is the best, basically, out of 10,000. Many people have written about the person of Christ because he is altogether lovely, even in his humanity. Dr. C.I. Scottfield, Schofield, the man who wrote the first notes for the Schofield Reference Bible, wrote about the Lord Jesus in a tract entitled The Loveliness of Jesus. Let me share a part of it with you. We're getting to my favorite part, okay? All other greatness has been marred by littleness. All other wisdom has been flawed by folly. All other goodness has been tainted by imperfection. Jesus Christ remains the only being of whom, without gross flattery, it could be asserted he is altogether lovely. My theme, then, is the loveliness of Christ. First of all, as it seems to me, this loveliness of Christ consists in his perfect humanity. Am I understood? I do not now mean that he was a perfect human, but that he was perfectly human. In everything but our sins and our evil natures, he is one with us. He grew in stature and in grace. He labored and wept and prayed and loved. He was tempted in all points as we are, sin apart. With Thomas, we confess him Lord and God. We adore and revere him. But, beloved, there is no other who establishes with us such intimacy, who comes so close to these human hearts of ours, no one in the universe of whom we are so little afraid. He enters as simply and naturally into our 20th century lives, as if he had been reared in the same street. He is not one of the ancients. How wholesomely and genuinely human he is. Martha scolds him. John, who has seen him raise the dead, still the tempest and talk with Moses and Elijah on the mount, does not hesitate to make a pillow of his breast at supper. Peter will not let him wash his feet, but afterwards wants his head and hands included in the abulation. They ask him foolish questions and rebuke him and venerate and adore him all in one breath. And he calls them by their first names and tells them not to fear and assures them of his love. And in all this, he seems to me altogether lovely. Before we continue, I just want to tell you, yes, there are words and phrases in this that we do not always use. But oftentimes, older literature can sometimes be really, really rewarding because people back then... I mean, not everyone, but there are just some people who are really serious about what they were writing. And for, I just value this. I don't know. I hope you do, too. Maybe you're just thrown off that he's not speaking the same English necessarily that we were or are today. But I really encourage you to stick with it and try to understand because it's so valuable. 
he is altogether lovely. Now, the important question is this. Is he altogether lovely to you? Are you able to speak of him with the enthusiasm that the bride had for her bridegroom? We must know Christ intimately if we are to witness of him, and we must love him. When one comes to Christ, it is not a business transaction. He is wonderful, and I do not think that we laud him, glorify him, lift him up, worship him, and bow before him with thanksgiving enough. He is wonderful any way that you look at him. Let me quote again from Dr. Schofield's essay. This is about to be my favorite part. No, this is my favorite part. Okay. The saintliness of Jesus is so warm and human that it attracts and inspires. We find it nothing austere and inaccessible like a statue in a niche. The beauty of his holiness reminds one rather of a rose or a bank of violets. Now just try to try to imagine this, okay? I mean, the comparison of Jesus to a rose or like a bank of violets, the wording here is just so refreshing and beautiful to imagine Jesus as something so lovely because he is. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them, all kinds of sinners. Nicodemus, the moral and religious sinner, and Mary of Magdala, out of whom went seven devils, the shocking kind of sinner. He comes into sinful lives as a bright, clear stream enters a stagnant pool. The stream is not afraid of contamination, but its sweet energy cleanses the pool. I remark again, and as connected with this, that his sympathy is altogether lovely. He is always being touched with compassion. The multitude without a shepherd, the sorrowing widow of Nain, the little dead child of the ruler, the demonic of the demoniac of Gadara, the hungry five thousand. Whatever suffers touches Jesus. His very wrath against the scribes and Pharisees is but the excess of his sympathy for those who suffer under their hard self-righteousness. Did you ever find Jesus looking for deserving poor? He healed all their sick, and what grace is his sympathy? Why did he touch that poor leper? He could have healed him with a word as he did the nobleman's son. Why, for years, the wretch had been an outcast, cut off from kin, dehumanized. He lost the sense of being a man. It was defilement to approach him. Well, the touch of Jesus made him human again. You have to understand a lot of the culture and a lot of the past things about these kind of things. For instance, the leper. I'm not reading anymore, by the way. I will. I will ba I'm about to read the best part, okay? This is the part that, like, brought me to tears. I'm not a teary kind of person, but this part just broke my heart in a good way, okay? But I just want you guys to make sure... I want to make sure you guys got this part. A leper is somebody with leprosy. That is a skin disease that is basically incurable, and or it wasn't... In it was incurable back then, and often people saw it as a punishment straight from God, and maybe it was. I don't know. But... It was transferred through touching, basically. And so the lepers were cast out and they weren't allowed to be in anyone's presence who didn't have leprosy. And people who didn't have leprosy were not allowed, basically, in the presence of lepers or to touch them because of the uncleanness of the leprosy and also the transferring, the contagiousness, basically. Six feet apart is what I'm trying to say. But Jesus showed such love and sympathy 
for that leper that when he healed him, he did not just say a word and say, be healed, because that would have worked. But instead, Jesus touches the leper as a sign of such love, because that, that's what he did for us. He bore our sins when he was perfect. He touches the leper to heal him, and that's just, it's amazing. I don't know. It says, the touch of Jesus made him human again. Now, for the best, the bestest part, listen to this with your heart open. A Christian woman laboring among the moral lepers of London found a poor street girl desperately ill in a bare, cold room. With her own hands, she ministered to her, changing her bed linen, procuring medicines, nourishing food, a fire, and making the poor place as bright and cheery as possible. And then she said, May I pray with you? No, said the girl. You don't care for me. You are doing this to get to heaven. Many days passed with the Christian woman, unwearily kind, the sinful girl, hard and bitter. At last the Christian said, My dear, you are nearly well now, and I shall not come again. But as it is my last visit, I want to let you... Oh my goodness, I messed it up. But as it is my last visit, I want you to let me kiss you. And the pure lips that had known only prayers and holy words met to the lips defiled by oaths and by unholy caresses. And then, my friends, the hard heart broke. That was Christ's way. We, we are the hard, bitter girl who have been loved so kindly and cherished so much by Jesus. And just that, that image that she kissed her just with love because, I don't know, I don't know, it's weird, you know, to us that a girl kissed a girl, but it's not like that, it's just, she kissed her out of love, she kissed that sick girl, the pure lips were willing to kiss the lips defiled by oaths and by unholy caresses. Just when I read that, I, I just, I don't know. It broke my heart in a way because that is us. We're ugly. We're gross. We're dirty. I mean, imagine kissing somebody gross. That'd be disgusting. But that is what Jesus did because he loves us. I can't explain it anymore. I'll let it stand on its own. But, um... He is altogether lovely. He never poses and demands his rights. His gentleness is never weak. His courage is never brutal. He's amazing. Who says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for they, thy love is better than wine. He wants to bestow his love, his affection, his care, his grace, his mercy upon us today. And we are as hard as that poor sinning girl. Jesus is amazing and he is altogether lovely. I'm going to close with this. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She knew him. She loved him. She makes him known. 
Is he your beloved? Is he your friend? He's my beloved and he's my friend. I want to know him more. I want to love him more. I want to make him more known. He is altogether.